Good morning, Colonial. Good morning to everybody who's out there, wherever you happen to be. Good morning. I'm so glad that you're joining me this morning, that we've had this wonderful time of worship. I, can I just say the obvious? All right, I know what you're thinking. I'm married out of my league. I outkicked my coverage. I get it. I know. Can you believe it? 27 years that woman has put up with me. I'm blessed. I hope you'll join us for our marriage series. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, marriage and family, and uh, we're just going to see how God speaks into us wherever, you know, we're, we all come from families. We're all part of this, and so I hope you'll join us. It's going to be fun. Hey, uh, speaking of fun, I want to tell you about something that's coming up next Saturday here in Kansas City. It's a big deal, and uh, I'm excited about it. I hope you'll be excited about it. You know, we have this organization that started uh, several, maybe about a year ago. It's called Unite KC. It was started by one of our great friends here at Colonial, Pastor Jimmy Dodd, and Dayton Moore, who we all know Dayton Moore with the the Royals. And they they created this uh, as a a movement in the ten domains of society to bring about healing and unity in the name of Jesus. And we have several of our colonial members who are part of the team. Uh, these are all just people I love all over our city who are committed to this vision of bringing unity and healing in the name of Jesus, particularly across racial divide. And next Saturday, they're hosting uh, a walk. It's a, a walk for unity. It's going to be from uh, 9.30 to noon. And it's going to start... And Truman and Troost, and they're going to walk a whole eight-tenth of a mile down to the Urban Youth Academy. And then there's going to be booths from all the ten domains of our society that are going to be there. Fun things to do for the kids. Dayton Moore is going to speak. Uh, Then there's buses that can take you back to your car. You don't even have to walk eight-tenths of a mile back. It's going to be great. I hope you'll join us. It's going to be a fabulous time. All right. I want to ask you a question. Here's my question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your peace factor? In other words, when you consider your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, your relationship with the world out there, uh, how at peace are you? You know, uh, our staff has begun using this uh, tool, if you will. We call it the peace quotient. And the peace quotient is basically assessing five areas in your life. Your space, your people, your health, your finances, and your sense of calling. And we give ourselves a score from 1 to 10 in each of those areas. And then we total that up. And that kind of gives us a sense of our peace quotient, how we're doing. It's a simple tool to identify places where maybe we need some prayer or some specific attention where we're lacking peace. And it's an opportunity to be grateful and give praise to God when we discover, hey, we're actually at peace in some of these areas of our lives. Now, I mean, there's a lot more that probably contributes to our sense of peace, but I think it's a good starting point to ask the question on a regular, daily, weekly basis, how at peace am I in my life, my circumstances, in my relationships? Where am I suffering from a lack of peace? And what am I doing about that? What are you doing about that? Right? We all desire peace in our lives. The question is, how do we find peace? And to that question, Jesus speaks directly into our lives, into this question. 
uh, in this pursuit of peace. And so we're going to return one last time to John 14, where he has been, Jesus has been addressing his anxious disciples. They're very much in need of peace. And uh, we're going to hear what he has to say. So Susan Vandeleur is going to lead us in the reading of scripture, John 14, 27 through 31. Good morning, dear ones. My name is Suzanne Vandeleur, and I have been a colonial member for 18 years. This morning, I would like to read to you from John 14, verses 27 to 31. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go from here. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church, let's pray together. God, we're so grateful. We're grateful, Lord, even, you know, this weekend, we just, we're still so grateful for our country. We're grateful for the United States of America, for the liberties that we enjoy. Uh, we're, we're just grateful that we, we get to live here. And uh, for those who are watching from other countries, we bless your countries, but we're pretty grateful that we live where we live. We know our country's not perfect and we've got some work to do. But we're grateful for it. Lord, we're grateful for this summertime and the opportunities it provides for us maybe to rest, to relax, to enjoy vacation, to, to reunite with family and friends. And we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have spoken to the questions we're all asking, like, how can I find peace in my heart, in my life, in my body, in my relationships? So I, I pray that you would speak to those questions today. And that we would be so encouraged that you would actually communicate to us through the word, through this message, in spite of my message, that we would hear from you and that we would know the peace of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, yes, the title of my message is The Peace of Christ. And it will fall under three subheadings. One, the peace of Christ. Number two, a cause for rejoicing. And number three, courageous love. First, the peace of Christ. Okay, I know some of you are visiting for the first time and you're not been necessarily all that familiar with John 14. So I just give you a little context. This is the last night of our Lord's earthly life. And there's several chapters here. Uh, it's called, you know, the farewell discourse. Jesus is announcing his departure. The disciples are pretty clueless. They'll get it soon enough. But he's preparing them. He's pouring into them one last time before the cross. Now, He's given them some bad news first. And, and the bad news is that he's going away and they can't follow him. Bad news is that one of them is a betrayer. And the bad news is that Peter, the leader of the disciples, is going to deny Jesus three times before the cock crows. I mean, there's a lot of bad news that comes in the front. But then for the whole rest of the 14th chapter, Jesus is giving them the good news. 
that it's, a, it's actually a good thing that he's going away. He says, you know, in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back. So I have to go so that you can come with me to my father's house. Uh, you know, he, he just gives them a lot of reasons to, to have courage. You know, he begins with do not let your hearts be troubled. He's going to end his, this part of his speech with do not let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. A lot of promises a lot of hope here. Uh, yeah, a lot of this powerful I am statements. Remember, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father but through me. And then he says, you know, ask me from now on forever. Ask in my name and I will do it. He promises that uh, when he goes, he's going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit who will bring to mind everything that Jesus taught us and that, that he will empower us to do things we could never do on our own. And then here at the end of his address, Jesus states these powerful words. <laughs> he says, peace. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Oh, there's so much here. Now, Many of you know this. Uh, you can travel anywhere in the world. This is still true to this day, but especially in the ancient Eastern world. It was a very common greeting. Either when you're saying hello or goodbye, you just say, peace be unto you. Peace be with you, right? <laughs> peace be with you. We still do that. We say peace be with you, but it's not as common. And, and it was very much a part of the culture during that day. Uh, it, it was a one word in the Hebrew. It was just shalom. Shalom, right? You've heard this before. Shalom. Uh, Shalom was a wish for God's holistic peace in the life of another person. Peace with God, peace with others, peace with the world. It was a wish that, that all that was lacking in your life would be made whole. But it was just a wish. It was a polite wish. Yeah, I mean, if I met you on the street and I said, Shalom, I would be expressing my simple prayer that God would make you whole. But I would have little to offer to actually make that wish come true. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how the world gives peace, right? I mean, they'll tell you, peace be unto you, and they'll give you a gun, <laughs> you know, to guard yourself. Uh, that's what we call peacemakers in our world. Uh, it's just weird. The, the world doesn't know how to give peace. They're not very qualified to give peace. It's really beyond the scope of any man to bring shalom wholeness into a life of another person. That's God's work. Which is why it is so remarkable what Jesus actually says. Listen again to what he said. He said, Shalom, I leave with you. My shalom, my peace, I give to you. See, Jesus is not wishing peace upon his disciples. He is providing peace. He is depositing peace into the lives of his followers. And I think really there are two different aspects of shalom, of peace, uh, that he provides here in verse 27. First, there is what I would call the big picture peace that only Christ can provide for souls who know they are condemned by sin. Uh, Jesus leaves his disciples with the peace of being reconciled with the Father. Now, this is a peace that the disciples right now will not understand. They, they won't appreciate it. 
until after the resurrection, the ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But it is exactly this peace that Jesus came to accomplish for the whole world. This is the peace that Paul describes in Romans 5.1 when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. No human soul, no human soul on planet Earth can ever be at peace until we have been reconciled with our Creator. That's just true. Every human soul innately knows, whether you're willing to admit this or not, every human soul innately knows that we have been estranged from our creator due to our sinful choices, attitudes, and behaviors. Why? Well, because the law of God is written upon the hearts of every man and woman, that we're all moral creatures, and our morality is strikingly the same in every culture, tribe, and tongue forever since the beginning of time. How do you account for that? The law of God is written upon the hearts of every man and woman child. And we know... (laughs) That we've all broken that law. And that we've sinned against God. We've sinned against others. We deserve whatever's coming to us. Now listen. Apart from Jesus Christ, the only way that we can escape that nine feeling of condemnation that we really deserve this, that, that we know we stand condemned, that we're estranged from our Creator, the only way that we can even avoid that is to constantly stimulate ourselves or distract ourselves with other things to where we just don't think about it, right? Uh, Listen, this is why so many of us cannot stand to be alone. That's a fact. That's why some some of us just can't shut up. We just have to keep talking all the time. It's, uh, It's why we constantly are stimulated. You know, we have to stimulate ourselves with our screens or books or adventures or work. We fashion our days and our activities around avoiding what we all know is actually true. That we stand as those condemned and one day we're going to get what we deserve. That that is a universal feeling because it's true. As long as that condition remains untreated, uh, shalom is impossible. Peace, holistic peace is impossible. As long as we remain estranged from our creator, we will have no peace. But there's some good news here. Peace with God is available exclusively through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. That's the gospel church. Can I hear an amen? That's an amen moment. Listen, when we repent of our sin and we place our confidence in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. We are saved by his grace. We are forgiven and we are reconciled to our creator. We're reconciled to God the Father and we come into the shalom of God. We are made whole in our relationship with the creator. This is the peace that Jesus leaves his church. It is a peace that cannot be taken from us ever, no matter what the circumstances of our lives. This is the deepest kind of peace available 
to a human soul. Did you know that? There's no deeper peace. This is it. The deepest kind of peace available to a human soul is to have peace with God. And it is what you have always, always longed for. Everyone does. Through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, Jesus leaves us this peace. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is irreversible. And it is always a source of comfort for those who believe. Now, we might call this kind of peace an objective judicial peace. I'm going to call it that because, because our verdict has been rendered and our verdict is forgiven. And that is the good news of the gospel. That is the peace that Jesus leaves us. But there's also a subjective experiential peace that Jesus gives us, his church, the believers. Jesus states, my peace I give to you. If you had the chance to be around Jesus, I mean, don't we all just wish that we could have hung out with Jesus for three years? How much fun would that be, right? But here's what you would have discovered. That no matter what the circumstance, when you were with Jesus, there was a peace about him. He had a confidence. There was a power. Uh, It was tangible. You know, it, it was, you remember the disciples are in the storm and the storm's raging. They're afraid their boat's going to get swamped and they wake up Jesus. He's like, why are you worried? I'm here, right? And he just calms the storm with his hand because he can. That's the peace of Jesus Christ. And he just said, I'm giving that to you. It was the peace that came in knowing God in such an intimate way with such confidence that he knew the father was always present and that he can be trusted this is the peace that Paul writes about in Philippians 4 it's a different kind of peace listen to what he says the Lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace with God. Peace that guards your hearts and your minds. The objective judicial peace, the subjective experiential, very personal peace of Jesus given to us. I just think this is absolutely beautiful. It is very exactly what he's saying. But remember, what what he's saying is, Because I go to the Father, I leave you this peace and I give you this peace. It comes and it's manifest through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's what we need in our times of trial and temptation. Now, as a pastor, uh, I have walked with many families. I mean, you can imagine 30 years. I know I only look like I'm 30, but uh, I've been doing this long. So as... As a pastor of 30 years, I've walked with families through unimaginable losses and trials. I mean, so many I've walked with, you know, through cancer to the loss of a child. Uh, And I, I can tell you that I've seen people suffer through such horrible things that it would be pretty reasonable for them to simply despair and lose their faith. I mean, you kind of wonder, how are they going to survive this? But it has actually been my experience that those who endure the most horrendous trials actually come to discover the peace of Christ 
in a more stronger and real and much more present and tangible way than ever, actually during that time in their life. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a dear friend just a few years ago. We we were sitting, we were getting to know each other. Uh, He was with his wife and they were telling me of this heartbreaking year in their life that had happened several years earlier when their five-year-old daughter had died. Now, at the time, my daughter Kylie was five. <laughs> I just started crying. I, couldn't even, I just couldn't even imagine. I couldn't, and even, I couldn't even let myself go there of how horrible. Some of you have lost a child. You know, I mean, it's just a, it's an unthinkable sadness. And so we were sitting there. We were all just crying together. But then they gave their testimony about the peace of Christ. They, they said it was more tangible. It was a tangible presence in their home. He, he literally said this. He said, it was, if, it, it was as if Jesus literally moved into our house and took up residence there. Because every single person who walked into our house encountered him tangibly. They felt it. It changed them. Several people came to the Lord during that season in their lives, including... Uh, I think it was his sister was a member of their family who had been very estranged from God and even hostile towards God. Church, the peace of Christ that he gives to his followers is not abstract or philosophical. It is a peace that passes understanding. It is tangible, personal, experiential. It is a peace that accompanies his presence. His peace guards our hearts and our minds, even and especially in the darkest night of the soul. I know. (laughs) I know. Listen, I know what you think. Many of us have been believers a long time. Uh, We've gone to church. And we're comforted by the peace that Jesus leaves us. I mean, we're grateful for our salvation. We know that we have peace with God ultimately. I mean, in the end, we'll be forgiven. We'll go to heaven. But that second thing, his peace that he gives to us, like, golly, I know. You're feeling like, I I don't have that. I'm struggling. You ask me about my peace, my peace factor, my peace quotient, like, a one or something. You, you know, I, I get that. But listen, can we agree that if we're lacking the peace that Jesus promised, it's not because he doesn't keep his promises. Can we agree on that? Jesus always keeps his promises. Which really only leaves one other explanation. And that is that we have turned away from that which Christ has offered. We have turned away from that which Christ has provided. We, it's, it's on us, right? Listen, think about what the whole 14th chapter of John. The whole point of this farewell discourse is to encourage the disciples to do what? To have faith. Faith is required on this dark night. It is going to be required in the next 24 hours when they see their master hanging on a cross. They're going to have to have faith. They're going to have to trust God. He says, trust God, trust also in me. Have faith. Faith is the action item that should come from this meeting with Jesus. Faith is the pathway then 
to receive in all the promises of our Lord, we must place our full confidence in him and then act on our faith by doing those things that Jesus commanded us to do. Remember, he just said, if you love me, you'll do what I commanded you to do. That's the manifestation of our faith. See, the peace that Jesus gives us is himself. It is his very presence. If he is with you, if his presence is there, like you're going, he's going to give you his peace. He promised that. So it's only reasonable that to experience more of his peace, we would seek even more of his presence, right? Let me ask you a question. What are you doing to seek more of his presence in your life? I mean, we experience, we know this. We experience more of his presence as we meditate upon his word and prayer. When we repent of those things that are offensive to him. When we declare his goodness and sing praises of all he has done. I mean, we experience more of his presence when we actually trust him. We we experience more of his presence when we take him at his word and we step out on faith and we do those things that he commanded us to do, such as loving the unlovely, forgiving those who sin against us. You know, when we seek to restore a broken relationship, when we pray for our enemies, we provide a cup of cold water for somebody who's thirsty. We experience more of his presence when we gather with two or three other people because he says, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. And wherever he is, his peace follows and he gives it to us. Now there's another piece to this. Jesus promises his peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And immediately after that, he charges his followers with this discipline. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't let them exercise discipline, heart management, heart uh, protection. Don't, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. This is a discipline. It's a practice. In other words, we are to resist entertaining anxious, fearful, troubling thoughts. Now, I know that sounds like a difficult discipline. But listen, we actually have a choice. We have a choice on what we meditate on. We do. You have the freedom to meditate on very positive, wonderful, constructive, God-honoring things, or we, we have the choice to meditate on uh, other things. I mean, we have to take ownership in the way we choose to deal with the difficulties that we face. We can let our hearts be troubled and afraid, or we can invoke the name of Jesus and place our full confidence in him. We can faithlessly live in the torment of a troubled and fearful heart, or we can claim and apply the peace with God that Jesus leaves us, take hold of the peace of his presence that he gives us as believers, and it will absolutely make a difference, right? But there's a part of that where we have to have faith and and don't let our hearts be troubled. Don't, don't let them be afraid. Practice this discipline. Uh, this is very much what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1, 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Where have you set your mind? Is that something we can work on? Is that something we can discipline ourselves? Is, can, can we increase our faith by, by 
by meditating upon his word, singing his phrases, claiming his victory, spending time in Christian fellowship. We can do all those things. And I'm telling you, as we do, we're going to experience more of his presence. We're going to experience more of his peace. All right. Let me move to my second subheading, a cause for rejoicing. So after charging his disciples once again to let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus states in verses 20 and 29, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. And if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe, may have faith, right? So here Jesus returns to a theme that he touched on several times throughout uh, the 14th chapter, his going and his coming. And he almost always says those two things almost right next to each other. I'm going and I'm coming. I'm going and I'm coming. Now, for most of us, when we think of Jesus going and his coming, what do we think about? Well, we think about his going up to heaven at the ascension, and then he's coming again at the end of the age, the second coming of Christ. And what does that leave us? That leaves us thousands of years where apparently Jesus is what? Absent, right? I mean, that's, what it, that's kind of the way it sounds. He's... He, He's going to the Father, but he's going to come again. And we're just kind of left with this amorphous kind of feeling of, you know, but in the meantime, you know, he's, he's not really here. Does that sound right to you? No, it doesn't sound right. Uh, here in John 14, listen, I mean, let's just remember what Jesus has been saying. He's promised his disciples he will come to them, that they will see him even though the world will not, that he will manifest himself to those who love him, that they can call upon his name, pray in his name, and he will do those things on their behalf, uh, that he and the Father would literally take residence in the heart of the believer, of the one who loves him and, and obeys his commandments. I mean, there's no concept here in John 14 that the going of Jesus is divorced for thousands of years from his coming. It's almost actually that in his going, he is coming. Um, now, listen, let me be clear so as not to create confusion. It, it, it is appropriate for us to anticipate that there will be an end to this present evil age and there will be a second coming, what we call the parousia. I mean, there will be a second coming of Christ. That will be the end of this age. That is, that's coming and that, that's his physical return in glory. But we should not think that when Jesus ascends to the Father that he's somehow absent until the end of the age when he returns in glory. No, not at all. In light of what Jesus has said, it would be better for us to think that it is in Jesus going to the Father that Jesus comes to us. His going is his coming. I mean, think about this for a minute. <clears throat> when Jesus takes on flesh... And he enters into human history, the great story of the incarnation, right? That we've been studying so intensely all through the, the Gospel of John. I mean, if you think about it, in that time, the only people who can actually know and personally experience Jesus are those who were within physical reach of his body, right? I mean, who can actually walk with him and know him in the flesh. I mean, there's a very, very small number of people uh, in, that, in that space and time. What happens when Jesus ascends to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit? You see, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is able to come to all who would call on his name 
anywhere in the world, in any country, in any language, at any time. It's in his going that he comes to us. This is really one of the main things Jesus has been trying to say to his anxious disciples. They don't get it, but we should get it by now. I mean, here's what he's saying. It is for your good that I go to the Father. For in going to the Father, I'm coming to you in a far more personal, powerful, and permanent way than I was ever with you in the flesh. And this, then, is the first reason that Jesus going to the Father is a cause of celebration and not mourning. If Jesus goes to the Father, then he comes to us and he comes to stay. That's good news. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father. But now listen, there's another thing here. And it's really obvious. <laughs> but I think a lot of times we miss it. Listen listen to what he said. He said, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. If you loved me you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Now, did the disciples love Jesus? Yeah, these men loved Jesus. I mean, every one of them could have said with 100% truthfulness, I love Jesus, all right? However, the disciples did not love Jesus with the kind of love that lacks self-regard. Most of us don't. I mean, like, like most of us, the disciples would have loved Jesus for the value that Jesus brings to their lives. We love Jesus for what he accomplished on our behalf. We love Jesus for the hope he provides and the peace he provides and the healing he provides and the love that he has showered upon us. But here's what Jesus is actually saying. If you loved me for my sake, (laughs) if you had any interest in my heart and my life, If you love me for my sake and not just your sake, you would rejoice because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. I mean, think about this. Who could wish? I mean, if you actually love Jesus for his sake, could you hope that he would stay even one minute longer than necessary in the limitations of this cold world when he has the opportunity to return to his father and all the glory that he is due. I I mean, if we truly love Jesus for his sake, we would rejoice at his return to the father because there at the throne of the father, Jesus will be glorified once again. Jesus will be magnified and given the name that is above all names. Jesus will shed the painful limitations of his humble state and claim the sonship that is uniquely his own with all the glory, majesty, dominion, and power that are his and his alone to claim. I mean, can you just be happy for him? That's kind of what he's saying. Now, now listen, I need to touch on this. Don't get hung up on Jesus' humble recognition that the Father is greater than I. You know, like, I mean, the Unitarians or our critics have used this one line to suggest that Jesus was just a man and a messenger and that he never claimed to be God or equal with God. Well, listen, we've seen over and over again in this chapter and all through the Gospel of John that Jesus makes claims that clearly, you know, that he is deserving of worship, that he receives worship, that he answers prayers. I mean, we've talked about that many, many times. So what is he saying? Well, at this moment... 
I mean, the Father is greater than Jesus, the suffering servant. Why? Well, Philippians 2 helps us to understand that, right? When Jesus put on flesh, he intentionally set aside his divine entitlement. It says, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being found in human likeness, he became obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Jesus chose this path, the humble path, to save us. But his role as the suffering servant is not a full reflection of his eternal nature. It was a reflection of his love for the Father and his consequent love for all of us. When Jesus states these words in this dark night in Jerusalem, that the Father is greater than the Son, that is circumstantially true, but not for long. When Jesus ascends, Jesus will be exalted. And that homecoming is a cause for rejoicing if you have any love for Jesus whatsoever. You know, here's a, I, I'm going to challenge you to practice this discipline this week. Just think about Jesus and be happy for his reunion with the Father. Just be happy for him. With, with no regard for what that means to you. Just be happy for him. Because if you really love people, you're actually just happy for them, regardless of what that means to you, right? So practice loving Jesus in that way. He just invited us to, if you're listening, right? So what am I saying by that? I'm just saying, remember his suffering. Meditate upon his humility, his shame, his long years of being distanced from the Father, <laughs> his enduring patience with religious prigs who spoke to him like he was an idiot. Think, think about the suffering he endured as the whips cut through his flesh, as the nails went through his hands and his feet. And then rejoice as you imagine his ascension to the Father, where he is welcomed by all of heaven as the conquering hero that he is. Think about his glory restored. Imagine his joy as he is once again in the unfettered company of the one that he loves the most, where he intercedes for his bride, which is all of us. Be happy for Jesus, and as a result, be happy for his church. Because Jesus ascended to the Father, we have cause to rejoice. Amen? All right, let me conclude now with our third subheading, Courageous Love. Um... Having considered the joy that awaits him when he finally returns to the Father, you know, there's that moment. And then there's a shift. I just, I just think there was a pause and there was a shift. And the look on his eyes became... Mm, ready for battle. And here's what he says. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And I mean, like, I hope you can feel that. Uh, Jesus has eyes to see what no other man can see. That's just part of being the God-man. He can see things that we can't. And Jesus can see who is behind the treachery of Judas' betrayal. Jesus can see who is responsible for the contamination of the minds of the religious officials and who will leverage the savagery of the Romans to execute Jesus on the cross. Jesus refers to that who, the, the evil one, as the ruler of this world or the prince of this world. 
And he says at this moment with unflinching courage, he is coming. Uh, Now, let me just pause for a minute. I know that any mention of Satan or the devil is typically uncomfortable for most people. But let us be perfectly clear about this. Jesus, more than Paul or Peter or John or any other biblical writer, quite clearly and quite often refers to the evil one as a personal entity. In John 8, Jesus refers to the evil one as the devil, who was a liar from the beginning, is the father of lies, in whom there is no truth whatsoever. It was the testimony of Jesus himself in Luke 4 that he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, that in fact the devil spoke to him and tempted him to give into the desires of the flesh. It was Jesus who told the disciples that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. A particular hour. Uh, So Jesus is not surprised by the advance of Satan on this dark night. This hour has been anticipated for some time. He's been speaking about this hour all throughout the Gospel of John. He's coming. The prince of this world is hungry for blood. Satan has arranged his pawns to snuff out the Nazarene. And he is quite convinced that death will bring an end to this so-called Messiah. Death is what every man deserves. And Satan is quite eager and willing to execute the sentence upon condemned souls. Mm. But the prince of the world fails to comprehend That Jesus of Nazareth is no ordinary man. Jesus is without sin. Only Jesus can say, he has no claim on me. No other human being could ever make that claim. We would all have to acknowledge that Satan's condemnation of our sin was warranted. That our punishment was just. And that the accuser was not wrong in his accusations against us. Only Jesus could say, he has no claim on me. Which is exactly why Jesus and Jesus alone is the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, only one who did not deserve death, only one who is without sin could satisfy the justice of God against sin. And so it was God's will that the sinless Son should suffer death in order to save all of us who deserve Death, spiritual death, hell. So I want to ask you, can you see the courage in our Savior's eyes? Can you see that courage? The time for battle has come and he impatiently awaits it. He is eager for this confrontation to finally come that will win back lost souls for the kingdom of God. His hour has come. And Jesus states, rise, let us go from here. He's not backing down. He's not hiding. He's not running away. There's no fear. Not the kind of fear that leads to cowardice anyways. There is courage in the heart of our captain. 
And he rises to meet his foe with a fierce determination. The prince of this world will have his hour. That Sunday's coming. Uh, now note the final words of our Lord before he gives instructions to head out. I, didn't, I, I skipped over this, but I just want to finish with this. He states, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Church, herein lies the singular motivation of Jesus of Nazareth, the love of the Father. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, and all his mind. And consequently, he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself, which means he fulfilled the law, just as he said that he would do in Matthew 5. So pay attention because he wanted you and he wanted the whole world to take note of this. Jesus did what he did out of love for the Father. He went to the cross as the Father commanded because he thought it important that the world would know that Jesus loved the Father. Now I want you to think about that for a minute in closing. This carpenter from Nazareth who had no place to lay his head surrounded by this little despicable group of followers, fishermen and, you know, social rejects, he thought it important that the whole world forever would know that he loved the Father. Now, that is either extreme arrogance or it is a sure indicator that Jesus is the Son of God, right? So what does the world know about Jesus the world knows that Jesus loved the Father. How do they know? The cross. That's how they know. The cross not only represents God's love for a fallen world, it represents Jesus' love for the Father. The love of the Son for the Father is represented to the world through obedience. Sacrificial obedience, costly obedience, obedience even unto death on a cross. Let me ask you a question. How will the world know that we love Jesus? You say that you love God. Show me. How can I know that? Has he not shown us? Has he not modeled the way? Has he not pointed to what is necessary? You see, the world's going to know that we love Jesus, that we belong to God in our obedience, in our costly obedience, in obedience that leads even to death on a cross. That's why Jesus said, if anyone's going to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because that's how the world knows that we really love God, that we really love Jesus. This is courageous kind of love. And church, listen, the world needs to see this kind of courageous love. It is the love that Jesus had for the Father. It's the love that we have for our Savior. It's the love that we have for one another. That kind of love takes courage. It will stand opposed to evil. It will be costly. But it is exactly the kind of love that saves the world, that saved the world, that will continue to save the world in his name. Amen? Oh, man, there's so much here. You know, I, I just, I hope you'll go back and spend some time, just reread the whole chapter 14 
There's so much here. Go back and reflect upon the many lessons we've learned, many weeks that we've been unpacking John 14. We're going to take a break now. Um, just give you a picture. We're going to take a break. We're going to enjoy Youth Sunday next week. I'm so excited by that. Emmett Hill's going to bring the word online. Just a brilliant young guy. Love him, his whole family. And then uh, on the 25th, we're going to launch our family in series. It's going to be a fun, very meaty uh, engagement in a place where we all have some needs. Uh, and then I will resume back into the Gospel of John beginning August 22nd. We'll pick up at John 15.1. So uh, for now, let us give thanks for the peace of Christ, the peace that he leaves us, peace with God, the peace that he gives us, his very peace and presence. Let us rejoice that the, that the Son has ascended to the Father. And let us love courageously in obedience to our Lord, a sacrificial love, that saves the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we um, close our time together, what a meaty passage, so much that you said here, not just in these verses, but all through the 14th chapter. We, we thank you. We would be tempted to despair had you not given us all the reason to hope, to anticipate not only the, the significance of your going, but the power of your coming. A coming that happens every single time a sin-sick soul cries out to you in repentance and faith, calling upon the name of Jesus. You come to us. You bring us your peace. You cleanse our hearts of all unrighteousness. You bring us forgiveness, peace with God, and the kind of peace that we need in the place that we live, in the people we're in relationships with, in our own bodies, whatever needs we might have, peace in our purpose, you bring that, you give it to us. And we thank you. Lord, we rejoice at your return to the Father, that you are with him, one with him, fully restored in all your glory. We can't wait to see you face to face, but we thank you that even now you are with us and we claim that in faith and we give testimony to the peace that passes understanding, even in the darkest night of the soul. We thank you for it. The church rises up, and this is our testimony. And Lord, we're asking now for the power of your Holy Spirit to give us courage, that we would live by faith, that we would live in obedience and even costly obedience, that we would stand against evil, even as we love courageously those in our fellowship. We love those who even persecute us that we would follow in your footsteps, that the world would know that we love you and that you love the Father. Lord, be with our church, be with our families. Bring us back together again soon. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. It's been a joy to be with you. Look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.